Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And as you turn there, I will warn you that I am not at 100% capacity. I am suffering from a pretty nasty summer cold. And so if God's power is made manifest in our weakness, there should be ample opportunity the Lord to show himself powerful this morning. <clears throat> Part of the difficulty is I'm having a hard time talking, so hopefully if we can, I can talk in this range, that will work. Um, I appreciate you bearing with me. In my weakness, Luke 22, 47 to 53, the action has begun, um, the arrest, the trial of Jesus, those gears are turning. Jesus went out last week. We saw the garden to pray, and the action of this week's text takes place while he's speaking. Um, From here on, the steps to the cross take increasing speed. Luke 22, 47 through 53, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, and Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Lord God, as we study your word, we would see the glories of the Lord, our Savior, who is fearless and unflinching in the face of his opponents. We would see his suffering. We would see his submission to your will. We would be changed in seeing it. And I pray that you give me strength, that you would cause your word to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we look at the betrayal and rest of Jesus, we're going to look at the, the movement of the plot over three points. Um, First, Judas' treacherous kiss. Judas' treacherous kiss. And as I mentioned earlier, the the action here picks up while Jesus is speaking. Um, So we're going to look at the, the when, the who, and the what. So Luke makes that clear, verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. While he was still speaking, what? While he was still speaking, the command... The warning, the exhortation that he had given to the disciples, first in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation or trial. Verse 46, he found them sleeping, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus had warned them. Satan had demanded to sift each and every one of them. He had warned them that Peter this very night would betray him. Three times denying that he knew him. 
We saw last week that Jesus found the time, made the priority to prayer, to wrestle through that. And they did not. These are men who were too busy arguing about who's the greatest. These are men too discouraged by the words they've heard that they just fall asleep. And so I'm going to read a quote by a commentator named Green. Helps set up, I think, this, this text. Jesus had warned them, remember, pray, pray for strength, pray that you may not enter into this time of trial. Well, the time of trial had now come. So it's enlightening to see how Jesus and his disciples respond in its context. Jesus, who had struggled in prayer, comes to this encounter in a state of composed mastery. His disciples, who have been sleeping rather than praying, face the ordeal with agitation and miscomprehension. So as we look at this, and Jesus' mastery in this situation, he's in control. Sure, they're here to arrest him. They've got a large mob. They've got clubs and swords. But Jesus, Luke puts Jesus in control. And we're to understand that as the result of his time in prayer. We're to see the disciples not knowing what to do. And again, we're to see that as the application of their prayerlessness. And I mentioned last week that perhaps the reason you and I fail in a trial is because we'd previously failed to pray beforehand. And so Luke lays this out. While he's speaking, while he's telling them, pray, the trial is coming, the trial arrives. When? While he was still speaking. Okay, who? And we get the introduction then of the mob. There came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. So, there's a crowd. Now, a little further down, Jesus, um, the, well, Luke delineates who G- that crowd's made up of. Look at verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple, and the elders who had come out against them. So the crowd is at least made up of that. It's likely there's some Romans, Roman guards. We can't be certain, but it's at least made up of this group. And you'll remember this group, specifically the chief priests, temple officers and elders, if you go back to Luke chapter 20, this is the group that wanted to arrest Jesus. Um, Throughout the gospel, the Pharisees have been the primary opposition, but now as Jesus is in Jerusalem, remember the Pharisees ruled the synagogues in the towns, but it was the scribes and the Sadducees, the elders, what's known elsewhere as the Sanhedrin that ran the temple. And so as Jesus shifts into ministry in Jerusalem, the Pharisees or disappear in Luke's narrative, and in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up to him. And the Sadducees get thrown into this mix in verse 19 of chapter 20. The scribes, the chief priests, sought to lay hands on him. Verse 27, there came from the Sadducees. So Jesus' opponents in Jerusalem are of this group so here they are. They come, they're led by Judas. Now it's, it's interesting to note how Luke names Judas. Um, here's an opportunity if Luke wanted to take it to just thrash him, to call him all sorts of names. I mean, in one sense, you couldn't speak too poorly of Judas, could you? His betrayal is the greatest betrayal that has ever taken place. And so it's striking is the simplicity with which Luke introduces the betrayer, the man called 
Judas, one of the twelve. And again, what Luke is, I think, describing this way, it's tragic. What's the only, <clears throat> what's the only description of Judas given? He was one of the twelve. That's what's noteworthy of Judas. Uh, this is one of the greatest tragedies in history. Judas is first introduced in Luke's Gospel in Luke 6, 16, when Jesus spent the night in prayer, deciding um, prayerfully who his 12 disciples would be. In verse 16, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He didn't start a traitor. Somewhere in his time with Jesus, three years, somewhere in that time, he decided to betray Jesus. He saw Jesus heal. He heard Jesus teaching. More shockingly, he himself preached the gospel of the kingdom and likely worked miracles. In Luke 9, 1 through 2, he called the 12 together, that would include Judas, and he gave them, that would include Judas, power and authority over all demons to cure disease, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And Judas was convincing enough in this endeavor that when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and even though they start arguing about who's the greatest, they don't all just sort of point to Judas, him, right? So I, I would understand that Judas had as apparently fruitful of a ministry when Jesus sent him out as any of the other 12. He has sat under Jesus' teaching. He has seen his love and compassion. All that we've seen in Luke's gospel, all of the compassion, the wisdom, he's seen it all. He's lived with it. And yet this man betrays Jesus. And so Luke just introduced him as the man called Judas, one of the twelve. What privilege he had. What immense privilege he got to live with Jesus day in and day out. And so, I think we should take our cues from Luke rather than vilifying him and trying to you know, stomp on him. Take a warning that people can start off well, they can appear to start off well. Judas became a traitor. And, and mourn and pray that there but the grace of God go I. So Judas, one of the twelve, and here, as Judas draws near, Luke tells us, he drew near to kiss, to Jesus, to kiss him. What's, what's going on there? Well, this is nighttime. And as Isaiah 53 tells us, there's nothing about Jesus that made him stand out. There was no halo going around his head. Um, I doubt he looked like a tall Nordic individual like some of the paintings I've seen. He would have looked like a common Middle East. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. He would have been an average, nondescript, unremarkably looking Middle Eastern Jew. It's dark, and they want to make sure they get Jesus. And there's the potential of one of the disciples stepping forward saying, I'm Jesus, I'm trying to scuttle him out. And so pointing at Jesus simply won't do. Judas is going to come up, embrace him, and give him a kiss. It's unmistakable then which one it is that they are to arrest. 
So he draws near to give him a kiss. This isn't the first time in Scripture that someone has betrayed another with a kiss. Um, David's mighty man, Joab, in 2 Samuel 20. Um, Joab fell into some disfavor with David, and so David made another man, Amasa, the, the commander of the army, and Joab didn't like that. So Joab says to Amasa in 2 Samuel 20, 9 through 10, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe that the sword was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails on the ground. Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So this is a betrayal. What is a kiss a sign of? This type of kiss on the cheek? Friendship, fidelity, closeness, camaraderie, loyalty, all those things I think you could put in. And the very sign that's supposed to communicate friendship, loyalty, camaraderie is used to betray. You can, you can lie with more than words. You can lie with what you do with signs. And so this act of, of an embrace and a kiss is a treacherous lie which leads to Jesus' sorrowful response. Jesus' sorrowful response. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And I think it's important to understand that even though Jesus knew these things would happen, and even though Jesus had predicted these things would happen, this still grieves the Lord in his heart. And we wrestle with the sovereignty of God. Well, if he knew this was going to happen, then how can this be so sorrowful? But the Psalms predict that Jesus' own response here is one of saddened chagrin. Really? You're really going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And our Lord's suffering involved the suffering of betrayal by a close friend. Listen to Psalm 55, verses 12 through 13. It's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. In verses 20 through 21, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated this covenant. His speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And if you've ever been betrayed, betrayed by somebody who should have been loyal, a family member, a spouse, a child, one of the sufferings our Lord endured was this man that Jesus had loved, that he had taught, that he had lived with, betrays him in such a high-handedly hypocritical way. So point one, Jesus, Judas's betrayal grieved Jesus. It grieved Jesus. This is part of the suffering. This is part of the trial. And second, this Judas kiss has become so infamous that that phrase is taken on its own life in our culture, demonstrates the depth of his hypocrisy. We don't know when Judas began to unravel, when he began to switch sides, as it were. But here, he's agreed to betray Jesus for money. But the fact that he's willing to do it so 
coldly, so treacherously. It just indicates the hardness of his heart that he has come to a point where he's not ashamed to do this. It's not as though he shows up covering his face. That, that, that's the guy and walks away. He walks right up to Jesus, bold as brass, embraces him, kisses him. Now Judas has gone over the edge. This is the depth of hypocrisy. And the title that Jesus uses, the Son of Man, indicates again the, the crime. It's, he's not just betraying a man, he's betraying the Lord of glory. The one who Daniel 7.13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, it was presented before him. He is betraying the Son of Man. Now Judas really takes no more part in Luke's gospel. We know from the other gospels, and we know from Acts, that he will kill himself. Even though sin promised deliverance and pleasure, it does not satisfy. And it's striking for us to note this week and next week that two men, back to back in Luke's gospel, are going to horribly betray Jesus. Jesus will suffer the pain of betrayal not once, but twice, here with Judas, then as Peter denies him with oaths three times. And one of these men will go straightway and hang himself, and the other will go on to write two books of the New Testament, preach a sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, where thousands are saved. And ultimately, we saw that ties back not to the fact that Peter is better than Judas, but Jesus prayed for Peter. Back in 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. They might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. So here is Judas's treacherous kiss, which then sets up the disciples' misguided swords. The disciples' misguided swords. Now Jesus has been telling the disciples all along what will happen in Jerusalem. As early as Luke 9.22, Jesus says clearly, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. 22 more verses further in Luke 9.44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Or Luke 13, 33, Nevertheless, I must go my on my own way tomorrow and today and the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Luke 17, 25, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected. Or probably most recently in their ears, most clearly as he's going up from Jericho to Jerusalem and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged, and after they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And yet again and again and again, they had no category for this. They did not understand. Well, finally, here we see the penny drops. When those who were around him saw what would follow. We've got an armed mob. We know that because Jesus rebukes them for having clubs and swords. A large group of people. And the disciples who 
have at least two swords with them. We know that from earlier in the chapter. They understand what's happening and what is about to happen. And by the end of our passage, Jesus will be arrested. We'll start next week in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away. So this passage right here is the arrest. Starting next week, he's in custody. And so he's been telling them again and again and again. But finally, it clicks. It's happening. And so, um, it's misguided, but they ask permission to attack his captors. And there's something good here. There's something right here. They've come to believe this is the Holy One of God. The people that would attack the Holy One of God, well, you've got to get through me first. And here's where, and I mentioned this two weeks ago, I think the ESV um, translation is, is not helpful. ESV has Jesus rebuking them with no more of this in verse 51. But the, uh, the New King James translation, permit even this, I think is better. I don't, I don't, what they're saying is misguided. This needs to happen. The prophecies need to be fulfilled. Jesus needs to be arrested. But their heart's in the right place, as it were. They want to defend. They want to be loyal. I mean, didn't Peter even say earlier in the chapter, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death? They asked permission to attack his captors. And one of them... Luke doesn't tell us who, although the other Gospels indicate it's Peter, cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. I want you to understand, if you're, if you're taking a sword and slashing it down on someone, you're not aiming to cut off their ear, are you? This was a, an attempt at a critical blow. I think Peter was trying to take this guy's head off, and it slid down the head and cut off the ear. And so this could quickly become a bloodbath, potentially. We know the other men are armed. So then how does Jesus respond? And and, and third here, we see Jesus' sovereign rebuke. Jesus' sovereign rebuke. So Judas acts, the disciples act. And again, you're going to see our Lord be in calm control of this entire situation. Jesus' sovereign rebuke. First, he corrects the disciples. He corrects the disciples. Verse 51, Jesus said no more of this. Now, I I don't understand why the ESV translators formed it as a rebuke. It's literally in the Greek, permit this. Permit this. It's used earlier in Luke's gospel, same phrase negatively, that Jesus wouldn't permit the demons to confess him publicly. Um, in, In Luke 4.41. And... There's not an indication that I can tell from it that he's, he's angry with them. No, no, let, let this be. Let this happen. They, they need to understand that this must happen. Permit even this. Point two, they too must submit to God's plan. I want you to get this. What's remarkable is after Jesus agonized in prayer, the agony was, the thought, the prayer request, is there any way perhaps this cup might pass? And the Father's answer is no. No, but I'll strengthen you with an angel. And as Jesus receives that answer, Luke tells us, he prayed even more earnestly. Look at verse 44. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So this was something Jesus really wrestled over. This was something he really desired to pass from him. 
And yet notice his mastery that after he finishes prayer, it is so resolved and so settled that not only does he accept his fate, he's basically telling the disciples, you need to accept it too. And as they mount a rev- you know, what could start to be a revolt, maybe he could get out of this. No, stop. There's no, there's no faltering. There's no double-mindedness in our Lord. The battle was won in Gethsemane. He is unflinching, resolute. And they too must now learn to submit to God's will. For Jesus submitting to God's will meant suffering on the cross. For them it meant letting him be taken. They too must learn to submit to God's plan. And then... The final miracle of our Lord before his death. This is amazing. It's just, again, the heart of our Lord. Think all that's taking place around them. The, the stupid disciples have been asleep. And now Peter cuts off the ear of a high priest. And there's a mob of people that are arresting him. And in the midst of all this chaos and confusion, Jesus heals the ear of the high priest's servant. In compassion, he heals the servant's ear. He touched his ear and healed him. Because even though great epochal events are about to take place, there's a servant bleeding in pain. And our Lord loves meek and lowly. I also think he did this in part to utterly remove the charge of sedition. Um, That's, I believe, another reason. They're going to try to charge him as one who is raising a revolt So in compassion and kindness, our Lord's final miracle before the cross, he heals the servant's ear. And then he turns on the crowd and rebukes them. Now they've come to arrest him at night, and then presumably there's torches and there's clubs and there's swords. You'd imagine they would be the ones in charge. They would be the ones with the initiative. They would be the ones feeling confident. Jesus is fearless as he rebukes them. He is in command of the situation. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He confronts his enemy's cowardice. He confronts his enemy's cowardice. He does it with some rhetorical questions. First, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? And what he's getting at is, why arrest him as if he were a dangerous criminal? Luke has shown that Jesus taught in the temple, in public, easy to find, day in and day out, all of the Passion Week. Luke's gone to great points. Look at chapter 21, 37, and 38. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So he's predictable. You can find him easily. It's not a question of where will Jesus be today. You know exactly where he'll be. And has Jesus done anything in his ministry to, to make him seem dangerous? Quite the opposite. He heals people. He raises people from the dead. He's, he's a peace bringer. Yet this large group of people who in and of themselves should be enough to take him decide they need clubs and swords as well. I mean, it's kind of preposterous. 
their cowardice, their corruption. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? And then he asked him the second question. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Why did you not, basically saying, arrest me if I'm such a criminal, when he was regularly teaching at the temple? Well, Luke's given us the answer for that. Look at chapter 20, 19 through 20. The chief priests and the scribes sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against him, but they feared the people. Look at 22, verse 1 and 2. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was at the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad. They agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, they're doing this at night because they're cowards. They're doing this at night because they're afraid of the people. And they're going to put on a show that they're arresting some dangerous criminal. It's corrupt. It's hypocritical. It's ridiculous. And our Lord calls them on it. He calls them on. This isn't a legitimate warrant. There's no real crime. We'll see in the coming weeks as we study this, their, their accusations against them are baseless. No, they fear the people. They want to get him at a time when he's alone, away from the crowds. And so they, they get their group together, and they come and they arrest him. And Jesus fearlessly calls them on it. And he says one last thing. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Which I think is to say the following. Luke has set up this notion of hour. Look at back at 2019. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. And we just saw in 22, verse 6, Judas consented and sought an opportunity or an hour to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So they've been trying, they've been wrestling, they've been looking for a way to trap him. We saw all the way through chapter 20 and 21. And so even though they have been striving and, and plotting and conniving to try to arrest Jesus, this is their appointed hour. This is the only night it ever could have happened. And again, this is Jesus recognizing he's in control. This is your hour and the power of darkness. This is when it must be. This is the allotted, apportioned time. These agents of darkness are operating in darkness. The most evil act that has ever taken place, the the crucifixion of the Son of Man, has now begun. The trial will begin. Later in Acts, borrowing some of the same language, the Apostle Paul speaks of his own ministry, being sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes, Acts twenty six eighteen, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in the place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. They've been waiting for an hour, waiting for a time, waiting for a time, waiting for a time, and here finally is their hour. And Jesus recognizes that. And what's, that, what's, 
It's amazing for those of us who've read the story more than once, who know how the story ends, even as they finally get their hour, Satan, in effect, commits suicide. Because in killing Jesus, he doesn't stay dead, does he? In killing Jesus, God's plan of redemption is accomplished. And so Jesus is aware, this is, this is the plan, this is your hour, this is your time, do what you're going to do. And in doing so, they will accomplish the Father's will. Not in a way that removes their guilt, not in a way that in any way lessens their culpability, but as we watch this, even as the disciples are confused, misguidedly trying to attack with swords, our Lord's calm, He's in control, and even as His enemies betray Him in such hypocritical and terrible ways, they are fulfilling God's purposes. What a Savior. What a God. Our Lord won the battle in prayer. And now He is resolute. He is focused. He is calmly in charge. Jesus had struggled in prayer, comes to this encounter in a state of composed mastery. And we'll see in the interviews that come before Pilate, before um, the high priest, before Herod, Jesus is in control. And even on the cross, the early church spoke with great irony of Jesus reigning from the cross. In that one act, God would redeem his children, bring untold glory to his son. Let's close in prayer as we get ready to sing our final song. Lord God, how great is the glory of your son. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And even though he agonized in prayer, he submitted himself to your will, to your answer of no. He calmly controlled the scene, corrects his disciples, rebukes the crowd, and heads resolutely to Golgotha. And through his submission and obedience, you have saved us, you have brought us to yourself. Lord, help us not to shrink back from the cups you give us. Um, Help us to bear um, the trials that you've apportioned for us. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.